0: This morning, we take a break from our series in the book of Hebrews, and we'll be looking this morning at Deuteronomy chapter 4. We have been looking at this book in our Bible studies for the past few weeks, and we want to take a look this morning at this particular chapter, Deuteronomy chapter 4. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 14. And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I'm teaching you and do them, that you may live and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. Your eyes have seen what the Lord did at Baal Peor. For the Lord your God destroyed from among you all the men who followed the Baal of Peor. But you who held fast to the Lord your God are all alive today. See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them. For that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it, as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous As all this that I set before you today, only take care and keep your souls diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children, how on the day that you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb. The Lord said to me, Gather the people to me, that I may let them hear my words, so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth, and that they may teach their children so. And you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain, while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud, and gloom. And the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire you heard the sound of words but saw no form there was only a voice And he declared to you his covenant which he commanded you to perform that is the 10 commandments and he wrote them on two tablets of stone And the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and rules that you might do them in the land that you're going over to possess. We pointed out in previous studies that the book of Deuteronomy consists of three sermons which Moses delivered to Israel in the land of Moab in preparation for their entry into the land of Canaan. And having outlined the Lord's mighty and gracious dealings with Israel in chapters 1 to 3, Moses here in chapter 4 instructs and encourages them to obedience and loyalty to the Word of God. Now, as an aside, before we delve into the text, let's note how Moses begins his summons to the people to obey the Word of God. Moses begins verse 1, And now, O Israel, listen, to the statutes and rules that I'm teaching you, and do them. And the thing to note here is that although the contents of Deuteronomy are presented in chapter 1, verse 1, as the words that Moses spoke to all Israel, such that here in chapter 4 and verse 1, he could instruct Israel to obey the statutes and rules he's teaching them, at the end of the day, all the utterances we find here in Deuteronomy constitutes the inspired word of God. No, these are not just Moses' words. These are the very words of God. The point is, as God's mouthpiece, Moses, is all the while speaking on behalf of God echoing the very words of God. And here then, in the very opening verse of our text, we have an intimation of the doctrine of divine inspiration, the truth that in Scripture we have not merely the words of men, but we have the very word of God. And particularly in light of the latest Gallup poll, the latest Gallup poll reveals that only Fifty-eight percent, fifty-eight percent of American Christians believe the Bible to be the inspired word of God. Let me just say here, I can't see how a person can be a Christian and not believe, not accept the Bible as the bona fide word of the living God. It just blows the mind. And this is a truth that bears repeating again and again that the contents of scripture, though penned by men, were in fact authored by God. And that is emphatically made clear in various portions of scripture. For example, in first, second Peter chapter one, verses 20 and 21, here's what the apostle Peter says. He says, knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The writer of the Hebrews will say in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. And in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, so that Paul could write to the Thessalonian Christians in First Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God. So here in Deuteronomy 4, Moses summons Israel to obey the word of God. Verse 1, Israel is urged to listen and do the statutes and rules of God. And here we see that obedience to God's commands consists of two things. First of all, it consists of hearing, and then secondly, of heeding those commands. Not only is Israel to be attuned to the Word of God, Israel is to apply the Word of God to their lives. Verse 2, God intent is that Israel might keep the commandment of the Lord their God. Notice implied in verse 4 is that such obedience is at one and the same time holding fast to the Lord Dear God, verse 6, the call to obey the word of God is expressed as follows, keep them and do them. Now the text before us this morning answers for us two questions which we want to consider in our study this morning. And the first question is, why should we obey the word of God? Why should we obey the word of God? And the first thing we learn is that we should obey the Word of God because the Word of God is powerful. The Word of God is powerful. It is powerful in this sense, the B part of verse 1, that this Word of God is life-producing. Here's what Moses said there. He says, do them that you may live and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord your God, the God of your fathers, is giving you. The reference here to live, of course, has to do more with longevity in contrast to the shortening of one's life, which results from disobedience. And this seems to be the case based on the promise in the next clause, that if the people obey the voice of God, His statutes, and His judgment, then they will take possession of the land that God is giving them. In fact, in verse 4, notice in verse 4, how Moses reminds them that in contrast to those who followed the Baal of Pear, those who fell into idolatry, he says to them, you who held fast to the Lord your God are all alive Today, this word Moses is saying to Israel is powerful in that it is a life generating word. Elsewhere in Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 3, we find that the word of God is life-sustaining. It is life-sustaining. From it we receive nourishment for souls, because here's what Moses said. Moses said in Deuteronomy 8 verse 3, Man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God of course in the broader context of scripture we also learn that not only is the word of god life promoting life sustaining but it is life generating it is through the word of god that we are born again first peter chapter 1 verse 23 james chapter 1 verse 18 so life promoting life sustaining and life generating as it is This word of God is powerful, and as such, you and I should obey it. We should obey the word of God because it is powerful. It is a life-generating word. It imparts spiritual life. It, It sustains our spiritual life, and it promotes all that spells life abundantly. Here's the question. Is your life marked by obedience to this word? You see, that was a challenge Moses was issuing to the people. He was issuing them a call to obedience to the word of God. You see, as far as God is concerned, it is not so much how much we know of Scripture as it is how much of Scripture we practice. Yes, it is quite good. It's commendable of of us to know the doctrines of grace. It's good to have command of the Scriptures, to have a, a knowledge of chapters, of verses, to be able to cite Scripture. But if there's not an attending commitment to the Word of God by way of obedience to what God says, then we are in trouble. You and I are called to do more than just have an intellectual knowledge of Scripture you and I are called to do what Scripture says. We are called to obedience and to receive the word of God, the Apostle James teaches, and not to put it into practice. is, in fact to deceive oneself. We are, the word of God teaches, actually deceiving ourselves, deluding ourselves when we take in the word of God, we consume the word of God, and we do not act Upon it also, because as suggested in verses 23 to 25 of James chapter 1, by not obeying the word, we effectively deny ourselves of its blessing, namely the blessing of transformation. Here's what James says, For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself, goes away, and at once forgets what he was like, But the one who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, he being not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. What is James talking about there? The blessing of a sanctified, transformed life. It's one thing to know Scripture, and here's the point. As Reformed believers, as believers who hold to the doctrine of grace, we champion the doctrine of grace. Here's the question, how much of the Word of God are we obeying? We might say, well, yes, I heard this already. I heard that already. But how much of what we have heard are we actually applying to our lives? And that's where it is where it really matters as far as God is concerned. Why should we obey the word of God? We should obey the word of God because the word of God is powerful. But secondly, we should obey the word of God because the word of God is perfect. The word of God is perfect. And this is implied in the command that's given in verse 2. Here's what God, through Moses, said to Israel. He says this, You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it. That you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. Here we have a strict prohibition against tinkering with the word of God. The point of this verse is that we should not supplement the word of God with our ideas with our fancies, nor should we subtract from it those things that are not to our liking. And we have a lot of that taking place in our time where people are subtracting from the Word of God, people are adding to the Word of God, people are taking what I would call a scissors-and-paste approach to Scripture, adding or taking from Scripture as they see fit. For example, recently in the state of California, one government official posted on a billboard Mark chapter twelve, verse thirty-one. And you know, Mark twelve thirty-one, it's you know, here's here here here's a text as posted on the billboard: "Love your neighbor as yourself." There's no other commandment greater than these. And this billboard was erected with these words to justify and promote abortion. And interestingly, in that citation, in that citation, Mark chapter 12, verse 31, the words you shall are noticeably absent. Do you know, isn't it a kind of strange irony? Where are people, the people of this country, they will hate and they will oppose scripture being placed anywhere, scripture being placed in the courthouses, but here it is, they will use scripture or rather misuse scripture to their own sinful agenda. Today, there are those who, in their attempt to legitimize their sinful sexual practices, twist and redefine the clear teaching of Scripture, the clear teaching of the Word of God, alleging, for example, that certain passages, such as Paul wrote in Romans chapter 1, were not, in fact, teaching on homosexuality as a sin. Do you know, my friends, that even in seminaries, Bible colleges, that is being taught? That our understanding of what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 1, verses 24 through 27 is all wrong. That Paul was writing from a cultural perspective that was not as enlightened, that was not as advanced as our modern present-day culture. There are preachers who are propounding this garbage. Right here in our country and throughout the world. A mishandling of Scripture, a misuse of Scripture, adding to the Word of God, taking from the Word of God. And my friends, it's not at all new. It is not a new phenomenon of people sidestepping the Word of God so as to give themselves over to their sinful agenda, to their sexual indulgences. In fact, Look at verse 3, down in verse 3 of our text, Moses reminds Israel, right in his discussion of the primacy of the word of God, not adding to the word of God, not taking from the word of God, in the very next verse, notice what Moses does, Moses reminds Israel of what befell Israel at Baal Peor, now what in the world is that? In a word, this was a sexual orgy in which, contrary to the will of God, the men of Israel were consorting. They were becoming physically involved with the women of Moab. You know the account, Balaam could not curse Israel What he did, he suggested to to, to the king that the way you're going to get these people, God is going to judge them, have them intermingle with these foreign women. And here's the point. The men of Israel did fall for these women. And what happened? God, in judgment, struck 24,000 in one day. My friends, we do not get to alter the word of God to suit our fancies. Revelation 22, verses 18 and 19 has the Lord himself issuing a most sobering warning concerning this tendency, this practice to add to the word of God or take away from the word of God. Here's what our Lord himself said. He said this, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues written in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are inscribed in this book. It becomes us then, my friends, not to add or subtract from the word of God, not to tinker with it or distort it in any way. Interestingly, one of the cardinal tenets of the faith which constituted the battleground of the Reformation. This month, we are talking about Reformation. This was the month, October 31st, when Luther placed his 95 theses on the door, the church door at Wittenberg. And one of the cardinal tenets of the faith which constituted the battleground of The Reformation was this very doctrine of the sufficiency and finality of scripture for faith and practice. Whereas the church at Rome taught that there were three sources of authority, namely church tradition, the scriptures, and the magisterium of the pope, The Reformers led by Luther and Calvin insisted that there was but one and one source of authority only, and that was Scripture, the Word of God. So here's the point. Sola Scriptura became the battle cry of the Reformation. Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone Throughout the Word of God, throughout the Bible, God insists that the Scriptures be taken for what they are, namely, His eternally abiding sufficient Word. Do not add to these words, do not take from these words, and that we should not add to them, attest to what? Attest to their perfection. Their perfection. Psalm 19 and verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect converting the soul perfect as they are they need no revision they need not be updated so as to keep up with current ideas let me say my friends this book is way ahead of this morning's newspaper God's word is perfect. Why? Because its author, the living God Himself, is perfect. Think of that. And being perfect necessarily means that his word constantly proves true. Psalm 18, verse 30, Proverbs 30, verse 5. They always prove trustworthy. Psalm 111 and verse 7. They're perfect. Being perfect then means the word of God is complete, the word of God is sufficient, the word of God is final, it is authoritative for faith and practice. 2 Timothy 3 verses 16 and 17, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for instruction, for reproof, for correction in righteousness. Here it comes that the man of God might be what? Complete, perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good work. The bottom line then is as as it stands the word of god needs no help. As has been well said we can do we can no more add to the revelation of god than we can add to the to the finished work of christ on calvary or the work of creation. To add to it, says one Bible teacher, is to mar its perfection and to usurp the place of God, the giver of light and truth. There's nothing in Scripture that is lacking. There's nothing in Scripture that is redundant. Scripture is perfect. Scripture is complete. Scripture is sufficient. And that is where we take our cue. That is where we derive our authority for all that we do as a church. Which means that adding to the word of God, taking from the word of God, is tantamount to disobedience. The second question we want to consider this morning, answered by a text, is how do we then obey the word of God? How do we obey the word of God? We should obey the word of God. How then do we obey the word of God? And we learn from our passage that we obey the word of God by publicly exemplifying its transforming power. We obey the word of God by publicly exemplifying its transforming power. One of the ways we express obedience to what God says in his word is by openly and uncompromisingly living it before an ungodly world. This is actually suggested by our Lord Jesus in Matthew 5, verse 16. Remember what our Lord Jesus said? He said this, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. As such, it is God's will, it is God's desire that his word should govern our lives, not just in the private sphere of our homes, of our churches, but openly and publicly in the wider society. And this was, in fact, God's will for Israel, as we see in verses 5 through 9. Speaking of the statutes, the rules that God had instituted for Israel, that he had commanded for Israel, Moses, in speaking to the people, here's what he said, Deuteronomy 4, 5 through 9, he says, See, I have taught you statutes and rules, as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding. Here it comes, in the sight of the peoples. Notice that phrase, in the sight of the peoples. Who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, surely this is a great nation, a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as this law that I set before you today? God's intention, we we see here, was that through their fidelity, through their loyal submission to his word, Israel would bear a powerful witness to the nations of what it is like for a nation to be blessed by God. Israel would bear a powerful, impressive witness to the nations of the reality of their God-given wisdom. They would demonstrate to the nation that the God they served is accessible, that he's a God who is very much involved in their lives, a privilege that the pagans did not enjoy. You see, as far as their gods were concerned, whenever they called to their gods, they don't know what was happening. Read the story there in First Kings chapter 18, what happened with the false prophets at Baal. Elijah said, call on him, he's probably gone on some journey calling him some more, maybe he's asleep. He says, when the nations look at you, if you obey my law, when the nations look at you and they see how blessed you are, they'll say, listen, what wisdom these people have. And to have a God who comes near to them, who answers them when they call to him, God intended that as the nations observed Israel, they would see Israel as a markedly different people. Nations would see them as a distinguished people, a people distinguished not in terms of their ethnicity, not in terms of their economic prosperity, nor their military capabilities. The thing that was to catch the attention of the nations where Israel was concerned was the impressive moral and spiritual quality of their lives as governed and informed by the Torah, the rule, the law of God. Israel, the nations were to learn something of the enormous positive impact that a people walking in obedience to the living God can exert on others. Witnessing God's blessing on Israel for their obedience to his commands, these nations would see that there's great wisdom, that there's great value in following the true and living God, the one true and living God, namely the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Israel. And so to put it in modern vernacular... What Moses was saying to the people then here in verses 5 through 8 is this, that as the nations would observe how God blessed them, they would be led to exclaim, wow, look at that. Look at those people. Look at them. What a nation. He was saying to them that through their obedience to the word of God, to the will of God, They would come to win the admiration. They would come to win the respect of the international community. That's an expression we use today. Win the respect of the international community. Long before now, God was saying that, and he was saying that with respect to his people obeying his word and the consequent impact, positive impact it would have on the nation, on the surrounding nations. You know, there was a time when this nation of ours was respected, highly respected, if not feared, throughout this world. Today, sad to say, rather than being respected, we are being ridiculed, we are being made a laughing stock of throughout the world. Just like ancient Israel actually on account of their disobedience to God, their rejection of God, became what Deuteronomy 28, verse 37, described as a proverb, a byword among the nations. That's exactly where we are in our time. Nations, it seems, no longer fear us, no longer respect us. And you ask, what was it or what? Let's put it in the past tense what was it that accounted for the kind of regard with which we were held by nations around the world? Was it economic? Was it military? In some respects, yes. But let me suggest to you that what was really at the heart of all these things, the high regard we had from others, it was this, our Judeo-Christian values. Not our economic might, not our economic prosperity, not our military capabilities. Yes, on the surface, it might seem so, but let me suggest to you that at the end of the day, what was holding us as a nation, what was giving us that level of respect from the international community was our respect for God, our respect for life. Listen, listen. How do we know that? Because the Bible categorically says this in Proverbs chapter 14, verse 34. Here's what he says Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. That's what the Word of God says. It is righteousness that makes a nation eminent, it is righteousness that makes a nation great, it is godliness, it is adherence to God's laws that makes a nation truly. Great, it tells us in Proverbs 16, verse 12, that the throne is established by what? Righteousness. Not by economic prowess, not by military might, but by righteousness, by being right with God. And yet, sadly, the biblical foundations, the biblical moorings of this nation... These values, these principles on which this nation was founded every day are being destroyed right before our very eyes. We have thrust aside, we have spat upon, as it were, the things of God. We have thrown out the Bible from our schools. And what have we become in the process? People with inverted standards of right and wrong. A culture given to celebrating that which is evil and condemning that which is good. A nation that puts darkness for light and light for darkness, Isaiah 5 verse 20. May I suggest this, my friends, that the idea of making America great again, and I'm not being political this morning, I'm being theological The idea of making America great again, that is truly, truly great, let me say this, can only be realized when the living triune God, the one true God of heaven, gets back his rightful place where he belongs, in this land, in the heart of this nation. How do we obey the word of God? We should obey the word of God by publicly exemplifying its transforming power. But second, we obey the word of God by faithfully teaching it to the next generation. Listen to verses 9 through 14. Only take care and keep your soul diligently. Lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life, make them known to your children and your children's children. How on the day that you stood before the Lord God at Horeb, the Lord said to me, Gather the people to me, that I may let them hear my word so that they may learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth and that they may, here comes, teach their children so. And you came there, you stood at the foot of the mountain while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven wrapped in darkness, cloud and gloom. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words but saw no form, there was only a voice. And he declared to you his covenant which he commanded you to perform. That is the Ten Commandments. He wrote them on two tablets of stone. And the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and rules that you might do them in the land that you're going over to possess it. Note in these verses, beloved, the high premium that God places on his word. And on the teaching of his word. And there's something very interesting that you need to see in verse 12. And it is this, that unlike the gods of the pagans, God was not revealed to Israel in physical material form. He did not reveal himself to Israel in the form of an image. Rather, how did he reveal himself? And here it comes. He revealed himself through his word. Don't you see that in verse 12? The primacy of the word of God, the centrality of the word of God. That's why, for example, as a church, we don't have images of mary we don't have images of jesus we don't have images just as the word of god says of anything that is in heaven or on earth because that is idolatry we believe as the word of god teaches in the centrality in the primacy of the word the word God said to the people of Israel, you want to know how important my word is? On the day that I met with your forefathers at Sinai, they heard my voice, they heard my words, but they saw no shape, they saw no form. What am I saying to you? My word is primary. It is not images. And let me say this. Whenever the church is given to anything other than the word of God, whenever the church is given to props, whenever the church is given to any kind of support for the word of God, the church veers into what? Idolatry. And his word, he impresses on Israel, this word was to be taught to their children and their children's children. God is saying here, God was saying through Moses that the knowledge of his word is to be perpetuated from generation to generation by teaching, starting with the children in their earliest years. That means teaching in the home. Teaching in the home. The question is, how do we save a nation from destruction? How will we save this nation, these United States, from destruction? How do we preserve sound morals and spiritual values, values that are grounded in God's truth? The way we do that, my friends, is by instilling in the minds and hearts of our children or grandchildren the eternal word of the living God. Our education system is definitely not going to do that. In fact, they have removed the very thing that should promote this. They have taken the Bible out of schools. They have taken the Bible out of the courthouses. They have taken the Bible out of public discourse. To use the Bible, to, use, to mention the things of God, really, it's like using a curse word. It's bad enough when they have removed the Bible from our public school. What's worse is the poison to which our children are exposed in our colleges, our universities. I've heard the problem we're having today. Luther saw it centuries ago. Listen to Luce, what Luther had to say on the, this matter of children hearing and learning the Word of God. Luther says this, as he looked at what was going on in his day, he says this, I am much afraid that schools will prove to be the great gates of hell unless they diligently labor in explaining the Holy Scriptures and engraving them in the hearts of the youth, I advise no one to place his child where the scriptures do not reign paramount. Every institution in which men are not increasingly occupied with the word of God must become corrupt. And we could talk this morning about why there is a battle In the realm of education, public school versus private tutoring. But here's the point. God would have parents, God would have grandparents see to the instruction of their children in the word of God. Read Psalm 78 because that is how the knowledge of God is going to be preserved in the land. Take away the Bible. Take away education, biblical education from our children And what we're going to have, my friends, is a nation that is racing headlong, speeding along to hell, to destruction. Now, what was the purpose of teaching the word of God to the next generation? Look at verse 10. Here's what God says, that the people might learn to fear God. That the people might learn to fear God. You see, the fear of God is not our natural default position. So that where there's no instruction in the word of God, what happens? People naturally cast off restraint. What does the Bible say? Where there's no vision, where there's no word from God, the people cast off restraint. And hence that nation become what? Ungodly. Unholy. Another purpose of teaching the word of God, verse 14, is so that the word of God might be obeyed. That might sound simple. But it bears repeating God wants His word to be obeyed. God says, Listen, teach the word of God so that the people might learn to fear God. Teach the word of God that the word of God might be obeyed. And so the purpose of teaching we see here is not for us to amass a body of knowledge. No. It is not for the purpose of amassing this body of knowledge that we can talk about, rather that, it is that we might apply these truths to our hearts, to our lives. One of the great temptations, and with this I close, one of the great temptations, if not tendencies, that we find in many of our Reformed churches, in fact one of the strengths which actually is a, can become a weakness, We know the doctrines of grace. We can articulate the doctrines of grace. We enter into arguments. We get into the fine points. We know the five points. We talk about divine impossibility. We talk about this and that area of doctrine. But the question is, to wrap up this message, how much of the word of God that is being taught, that is being propounded, is being obeyed? That's where it's at. That's where... It is at. Yes, we claim we have a high view of Scripture, but here's the point. To have a high view of Scripture at the end of the day means more than just knowing it. It means more than just articulating it. It means applying it. Are we applying the Word of God to our daily lives? In this chapter, as someone well points out, Moses spends much more time calling his people to orthopraxy than to orthodoxy. We are not called to enter into fanciful theological speculations. We are called to obey this word, to magnify this word, In our lives. And when we magnify this word in our lives. And the very intent of God. As expressed in this passage for Israel. Is this. People will look at us. And they will be led to what? Marvel. Let your light so shine before men. That they may see your good works. And glorify your father who is in heaven. Is that true? In your life? Is that true? Oh that these things might be so in our lives. In your life. In my life. For his name's sake. Amen.